Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here again recording in the studio, also known as my office at the college. Uh, Mike and I, and we are joined by a guest who we will introduce in just a moment. And we're excited today to be talking about travel. Uh, You might not be excited to be uh, thinking about travel right now. Some of you may be listening to this while you're on the roads. Uh, If you're like me, perhaps you'll be on the road between uh, Milwaukee and Detroit, maybe somewhere around Chicago uh, in the parking lot that can become 94 or 294. But we're hoping uh, that these episodes find a number of... Did I tell you the one time my my sister was graduating from MLS and Abigail was like... She only graduated one time from MLS? And she, uh, Abigail, our oldest, was like three months old, and we got to not even close to the city limits. It was just a parking lot, and she was screaming the whole time. Yeah. I turned back and called my sister and said, "We're not making it to graduation." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. sorry. Yeah, no, that some of you will know that fun, but others, uh, you're somewhere else in the country that gets to have the same fun, or perhaps you're traveling uh, in the air or by train. But we hope that these episodes. We'll give you a little bit something to listen to to distract you as you do so. Also, just a few things to get out of the way up front. Would encourage you to be looking for. Uh, they may be coming out, Mike, if I'm thinking schedule-wise, probably are coming out right before this episode. Um, but we're hoping to have a couple days before this episode drop, kind of for some binge listening, three winging it sessions on the life of Luther. Mike and I have now recorded three. We're hoping to record a couple more yet uh, next week. Um, but on Luther biographies and how we can learn as much about the biographer as the bi- as Luther in the biographies. Um, and then his early life, his kind of socioeconomic, cultural, religious background, and then we've got up to the university with his education. We'll be picking up next one with his university education. So I encourage you to look for that, that Winging It series on the life of Luther, and they'll be following weekly after that. We feel like we're in a good place now. We're getting episodes back to uh, weekly, usually on a Tuesday. We are going to break that schedule, Lord willing, for Christmas and have a drop. We're hoping on Sunday the 23rd of our Christmas episode so you can have that in time for your celebration of Christmas Eve and Christmas, but encourage you to look for those. Also, uh, 1517, we are part of that podcast network. Um, Their campaign drive is still going on as they're raising funds for the end of the year for our next year. We're very helpful or we're very thankful for all the help that they do provide to us, technological stuff, equipment stuff, um, travel, things of that nature that have come up uh, and they have been very kind to help with, uh, as well as kind of uh, helping us expand the conversation, as we like to say. And so do consider, if you would like to, to give for that. You can go to 1517.org, and the options are there. I believe it's slash. I never know what a forward slash or a backslash is, but then give. Um, and if you want to mention Let the Bird Fly that you're giving because you're a, a fan of the show, you find it helpful, you're welcome to do that as well. I think that covers about everything, so we better let our guest uh, um, introduce himself. I'm very privileged to have a colleague on, Mike and I, that is, to have a colleague on. Um, He has been a teacher to my wife, and now he is a colleague here at the college, uh, a school chair, um, and uh, just a long and, uh, I would say, very faithful career. And that is Dr. Marty Moldenhauer. if I'm not mistaken, I believe my daughter has your son in class at Wisco as well. So there's a double connection to the Moldenhauer family. But uh, Dr. Moldenhauer, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself however you see fit. Sure. Thanks, Wade and Mike, for having me on. <clears throat> when you were talking about I-94 and 294 in Chicago, it brought me back to a memory. We traveled from Watertown to Saginaw over Thanksgiving and Unfortunately, we left on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving with three small children in the van, and it was it was a hardship. We got to the toll booth. I decided to take 294 rather than 94. Which is usually smart. Yeah. <clears throat> it might have been, but it wasn't this day. <laughs> we got to the uh, first toll booth, and I said to my wife, well, at least now we'll, we'll move a little faster once we get through this toll booth. We got about 100 yards, and we were stopped dead. They were backed up to the next Sheesh. toll booth. Just about lost it completely at that time. And your, mar- your marriage um, survived, and it all of your children? was a long time ago, there. Mike. <laughs> yeah. I've been here at the college for 21 years. I am an English professor, and before that I taught at Northwestern Prep and Luther Prep, and before that at Lakeside Lutheran High School, where I think I had Wade's wife. At, actually, at Luther Prep, you did. Oh, I had her at Luther Prep. Yep, she okay. was a commuter, though. She did not live in the dorms. Okay. 
and then I was also a principal in Columbus, Ohio, at a Lutheran grade school called St. Paul's. So that's been my checkered career. And my PhD is from Illinois State University, and I have uh, other degrees from other colleges. But I do love to travel, and I think that's why you invited me on today. That is. What, uh, what are you teaching this semester right now? Right now, a survey class of American authors, 37 American authors. We call it American Literature Part 1. I'm teaching a freshman writing class. We call it English 101. And I'm teaching an elective class to upper-level English majors called American Naturalism and Realism. Huh. And you're traveling uh, over the break in our, what we call the J-term, is that correct? Yeah, I'm taking 13 of our students from Wisconsin Lutheran College over to Italy. This would be my seventh time on that particular venture. We're going to fly into Rome and then stay in a little town called Orvieto and uh, also visit, of course, Florence and Assisi and Siena and go back, double back to Rome to cover some of the Roman sites. Also go out to the little archaeological town of Ostia Antica, which was the harbor on the Tiber River for Rome at St. Paul's Day, and we walk huh. on the ancient Roman road. Oh, well, very cool. good. Yeah, yeah, Italy is one that I've always wanted to make happen, and we haven't made happen yet, so maybe this will let a fire under my wife and I. Uh, Mike, why don't you go ahead and give us that disclaimer so we can make sure we can't at all, legally or otherwise, get in trouble. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And welcome back. We're here at our free-for-all. And we thought today for our free-for-all we would talk about food again. And since we're talking in our main topic about travel, we thought we would ask the question, what's your favorite food when it comes to uh, traveling? So if you repeatedly go to a place uh, stateside or or, um, worldwide over the seas, what would be something you go back to or what was your favorite meal? And, so it can and be a one-off thing. It can be a one-off thing to absolutely. Okay. And to say this, that part of travel, one of the main things of travel is to actually enjoy the local fare. It's uh, uh, something that some people maybe miss out. They just want to do everything cheap, but they really should go and experience the culture and that uh, part of every culture is their food. And so I'm going to start off and then we'll go to, to Wade. Um, mine is kind of just a goofy thing that the best hamburger I ever had was in Mazatlan, Mexico, and the best Mexican food I ever had was in Bremen, Germany. I remember after those meals going, that was a really, really, really good meal, and the, and the irony that I was in, like, completely opposite, opposite place. When we were in, in Mexico, we just happened to have a free ticket to this place that had burgers, and um, when we were in Germany, this was the, towards the end of a three-month uh, stay in Europe, and uh, quite frankly, we just, it was the only thing open on a Sunday, and happened to be great Mexican food in Bremen, but actually my, my favorite authentic food, authentic to the place I was in, was pizza in Sicily, where they had hard, sliced hard-boiled eggs and cold peas on uh, pizza, and uh, that pizza, that changed pizza for me forever, and so now I put slices of hard-boiled eggs on pizzas and calzone anytime I can get. Wade, what about you, food and travel? Sure, I will. I'll give my one-off uh, kind of meal, and then I, I guess I'll give my favorite. To be honest, when I'm traveling, what I'm actually going to eat, and I, I agree with Mike. It's good to, to spend a little more sometimes and get some of the local food, and you, you learn a lot about the culture just from the food they eat. Uh, you learn about their geography, what's going into the food. Um, you learn about their meal times, right? When is important for them to meet? How do they eat? Are they, you know, go home to eat, and the windows are drawn, or are they social eaters? Are they out and about? But uh. 
My my best meal, I would have to say, would be in Eisenach, Germany, um, by the Gerigen Kirka. I believe it was called the Brunnen Keller is the place. It's kind of you go down into the cellar. And uh, it was just, I don't even remember what it was called, but I know it was the, exactly uh, the type of food we would picture German food being. And uh, it uh, it was just good. I went with, uh, we were with a number of friends and with my wife, and it was just hanging out. And the food was good, and there's the hanging out was good. And so I would say that probably my favorite meal was a place we hadn't looked up to find, but just we were walking around, we decided to go down and eat. But as far as if I if I travel, and when I travel, I go to Europe. I mean, it's just what I do, and I realize that that's I should branch out. But um, I remember Pastor Peel trying to get me to go to Israel once uh, when he was thinking of going, and I, I just always picture like, war could break out there. So I like to go to places where, that's why I don't go to France, right? There might be a riot or something. But um, So I'll admit, like, I'm very biased by those things. Um, but I'm going to get uh, donor or daner or however you want to say it, which is basically Turkish street food in Germany. Now, uh, they have it in the Netherlands, too. It's going to be called by an equivalent name most places, but it's a meat um, of some sort. And I wouldn't ask questions about it. And it's on, would you call that a spigot? You know what I'm talking about, Mike? Spit. It's turning. And uh, it's kind of like a gyro over here. Uh, but that's probably going to be, you know, and I would say for my wife, too, we go over. That's the first thing we're going to get. Yeah, if and we get and all over. I mean, in France and Italy, every little, I don't care how small the town is, there is some family that is that is giving you uh, some lamb or beef on, yeah. a, on a spit. And it's great and it's cheap and it comes with french fries usually yeah that and the the second would be pretzel bread in germany i just eat a ton of pretzel bread usually i'll have you know to to try to like you know really be healthy i'll have like a breakfast and lunch of pretzel bread and then a donor dinner so <laughs> that's very good i got quite a few food stories as you do too but we should get to our guests so marty uh you have traveled extensively enough and i know that you uh appreciate the local foods i'm sure because uh being a seasoned traveler so tell us some stories about uh food in your travels okay well you're you're hitting a topic that's close to my heart <laughs> and uh, i'm I'm an aficionado of fish fries, too, by the way, if we want nice. to talk talk about uh, West Dallas and Milwaukee. But uh, I'd say bangers and mash over in Ambleside, Cumbria. Uh, that's a province in the Lake District, northwest England. And there's a hotel there called the Queen's Hotel. And when you walk in, uh, the aroma hits you already. There are linen tablecloths and real silverware, so it's a nice place. And uh, bangers are sort of thick, rounded sausages that curve. They're not straight like bratwurst. And the mash is mashed potatoes, but a gravy and mushy peas next to it. And uh, that's enough for me right there with with perhaps a bottle of locally brewed beer. Excellent. Yeah, I think... uh, uh, the fish fries in in England are, are well. We can't call them fish fries, but uh, fish and chips in England is another one that I'm sure you've had a quick easy um, quick easy meal on on the way there. Um, Wade, you want to any, add anything else to your food food stories? Um, I am curious. You guys don't have to admit if you feel too guilty, um, but especially when we were living in the Netherlands when I was doing my PhD um, with five kids who. Uh, weren't necessarily looking to always be ambitious with their palate. And, uh, you know, seven of us in a two-bedroom apartment, uh, how often when you're when you're abroad do you just fall back on American food? I mean, you, have you gone to a McDonald's? Over? I, there, was, I, there were several times I took my bike in Rotterdam and just rode it to McDonald's, <laughs> and I got just – I said, you know, basically give me all your McDonald's, and I put it in the uh, – I had a little carriage thing on the back of my bike – and then brought it back and told the kids, just stop complaining and eat French but, fries. But, but, you know, that's the first time you probably had mayonnaise with French fries. And so it was, there was a little they flavor They love that in the Netherlands, it. too. Yes, yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah. When I take students abroad, I generally tell them they cannot eat at McDonald's or KFC. <laughs> uh, they have to eat the local fare. And in Italy, the ristorantes. And in England, the pubs. It is interesting to me that, I mean, McDonald's doesn't surprise me in Europe, but there are a lot of KFCs. Well, I wonder, so that's the Yum brand, which I think is owned, I want to say it's an international company, so. That could be. I think that probably opened up quite a bit. Because there's a disproportionate amount of them. I mean, 
given how many are here, I wouldn't expect so many. Well, there, think about it this way, perhaps, and I'm I'm literally asking, not not telling here. What's truly American food that's like not native because that's na- Native American food and that has its own 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 genre for lack like of a Adam better Lambrook word. Adam Lambrook taught it. Or? Um, but you know, hamburger, Frankfurt. You know, those things came over, but. Fried chicken is that maybe what Americans' greatest uh, greatest food export is? Maybe that could be. I know the beef is not real great in the United Kingdom because, well, the the cows or steers that they would the cattle that they would raise is not as corn fed and and uh, it tends to be a leaner meat. Mm-hmm. So I I kind of avoid hamburgers in Great Britain huh. for sure. Interesting. I just a couple of tidbits. I uh, in the Alsace and uh, where I studied a little bit in Strasbourg, uh, they're known for some flat kind of what we would call pizza, hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. I didn't think that, that, but they're famous for that. And uh, when I went to Germany with my wife, uh, I kept uh, my German's not super great when it came to the different names of sausages, <laughs> and I kept ordering. You know, you just say first, right? <laughs> <laughs> like these little white sausages that I didn't really like, like fat ones. And uh, they had a different name in every restaurant, but I would order them. I'm like, I didn't like that. I'm going to order something different. And I got the same thing, like <laughs> five meals in a row. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's, it's, it is an experience when you um, when you go abroad. I think I had a beef tartare in, uh, in, um, in Paris last time I was there. And the waiter clearly knew I was American, he, and he said in English, you know what that is, right? And I, and I said, of course I do. Just <laughs> Yeah, that was, we had a, it was great. We were in um, Cologne once. I believe it was Cologne. It was, yeah, it was Cologne, not Heidelberg, because they have the little, the little Kelsch beers where you, I mean, it's a nice little beer, but if you've been in Munich and then you go to Cologne, you're like, whoa, wait a second, because Munich's like the gallon jugs, and then all of a sudden they're giving you little tiny beers. And uh, this group of Americans came in and they came with like a tour, so they're all wearing the same thing, so you kind of know they're together. And, uh, you know, get the English menu if you're really not up to par with the with the the language. It's it's fine. No one's gonna look down on you. But they wanted to order from the German menu, and I heard this lady. I knew what she ordered, and so I was just waiting. You know, I I may have even changed seats so I could see it perfectly when it came out. But she ordered a pig's head, and it came out with the eyes in it, everything still, and you could tell she didn't have it in her to like be like, oh, can I have something else? And I, uh, but that just drove home for me, like. Sometimes it's good. You appreciate the waiter saying, do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Um, it's good to try things when you're abroad. You don't have to try everything. You know, pig's head, if, you're, if it's not your thing, yeah. get the English menu. But it's also fun to make mistakes, too. You know? Unless and she then, did not look like she was having fun. <laughs> not maybe at the moment. but It was staring but at it was, her. It was mistake a mistake was staring at her. It was a good her. story that I'm yeah. sure she's told many times. Uh, you know, and, and there are things where you go, I remember, I can't remember exactly where we were in Italy, but... Uh, it seems like every meal was very thick with olive oil, and it was just too much for me. Well, I learned that, you know, not all Italian food I like, I guess. Are we allowed to talk about beer on this Absolutely. show? Absolutely. Go ahead. Well, I'd, I'd like to talk about Pilsner Urquil sure. Brewery, which uh, I had a chance to be in Pilsen and go to the actual brewery long before it got to be popular here. I think this is probably 25 years ago. And uh, it seems now Pilsner Urquell is a beer of choice for yeah. people who want an imported beer. But I had the uh, original beer there in the brewery. And then <clears throat> when we go to England and you order any kind of beer or ale in, in the pub, it'll come to you at room temperature, which is off-putting for me. I don't want my beer with, with an inch and a half of foam at the top at room temperature because they're basically pulling it up from the barrels in the basement. And I have gotten to ask the bartender or the waiter, could I have a cold beer, please? And they give me a little bit of a scowl, but they usually can find some bottle in a refrigerator in the back room. I uh, just don't care for it at room temperature. Yeah, it, it, there is definitely. And and if you drink Guinness in America, the Guinness in America is going to be Guinness different than the Guinness in Ireland without the preservatives. And it, it, it is a different, different temperature, sometimes a different different feel. Um, yeah, Pilsner, Urquell, uh, and, and then the other Czech beer, Gambrinus, right? Uh, another food story, when we were in, uh, in Prague, we had such a favorable exchange rate for the U.S. dollar. Um, that we had a seven-course meal for like 
five dollars. That was Borderland with, and I in Croatia. With too, like yeah. you know, I mean, literally the waiter there with his napkin, you know, his his arm extended or folded there, and and then the white napkin there just ready to give us whatever we want, and we and gambri pints of gambrinus or whatever they put it in there in Czech Republic, uh, you know, the equivalent of twenty five cents. You know, it's it, it was quite something. So, and that's that's one of those cool things about traveling too. Is sometimes you can find that local restaurant that's relatively cheap, and you actually probably get a, a better taste for the local the local fare than going to something. Usually, fancy. better conversation too because yeah. they're excited to see you there. Well, Mike, should we wrap? We're kind of getting into the main topic. Should we wrap up the free for all? What do you think? I about think it? so. We'll be back with our main topic. topic today is going to be about travel in general, the importance of travel. And uh, no better guest than uh, Dr. Boldenauer here who uh, has traveled extensively and has also led quite a few uh, student tours. Um, so in Italy, but also extensively uh, in, in England, at least, if not the whole British Isles. And so we're going to let him kind of hold forth here uh, uh, on travel. And Marty, we'll start off with this. You have told me a quote twice from uh, Mark Twain about the importance of travel. And why don't you uh, give us that quote and kind of just uh, expound on it? Sure. Well, the quote I like, uh, like many quotes from Mark Twain, who was a, a 19th century wit, but the one uh, that I've recorded and kept in my heart is travel is fatal to prejudice. Mm. And, and that uh, Twain himself traveled the globe. He lectured in Australia, Europe. He traveled around the entire world meeting people. He was really on the first cruise ship in 1866. He left America and, and went to the Mediterranean region on a cruise ship, on a tourist ship, and he met people in Italy and Egypt and Israel and sometimes even entertained the princes and the, the queens and kings. Uh, but then he wrote a, a book about it called The Innocents Abroad. And so he, had good, he lived in Florence, Italy, near the latter part of his life. He lived in London. He had good reason to, to make that statement, travel is fatal to prejudice. And it doesn't have to be international travel either. I think it can be just to uh, Arizona, Arkansas, or Alabama too. You, you, can, you can meet other people and realize that your way of life, your living style is not the precious holy grail. It's, it's other people who can teach us things. And uh, my, my travel wanderlust, and I, I like to use that word even in front of my students, and then I quickly tell them that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, it started when I was about 16, I think. Uh, fellas, if I can just tell you this little story. I, I was, my parents were gone. I was 16. I couldn't drive yet. And I wanted to visit a buddy. I was living in Nina, Wisconsin. I wanted to visit a buddy in Menominee, Michigan. And so I... I headed over to the Greyhound bus station, uh, and I and I got a ticket, which was to Marinette, Wisconsin, the twin city of Menominee. Huh. And the announcer was announcing the next bus to leave, and I thought he said Marinette, but he said Manawa. And so I got on that bus, and I knew within 20 miles we were not heading north from Nina to Marinette on Highway 41. We were going west and north. So I asked the bus driver, is this going to Marinette? And he gave me a, a look like, what's this 16-year-old kid doing on my bus traveling alone? <laughs> so he said, well, I'll let you off at the next city, and you can try to get back to uh, Appleton or Nina. The little town was Wittenberg. It Probably at that time, now this is a long time ago, fellas, 50 years ago. Wittenberg probably had 300 people. And... Uh, it was dusk or, or nearly nighttime, and I was hungry, so I said, where's, I went to a gas station, said, where's the nearest place to eat? And they said, 
The only place to eat is that diner over there. So <clears throat> I went into that diner, and it was a thunderstormy night, and the power was flickering on and off. And I realized I had to stay in Wittenberg overnight, so I asked again politely, as a 16-year-old kid can ask, uh, where do I, where's a lot, where's a motel? And they said, well, there's only one place, and I, I hope I'm not defaming this place. It was called Polak Joe's. And Polak Joe's was just a big house. That when I went in there and I met Polak Joe, or at least I assume it was, it was Polak Joe, he didn't have any teeth in his mouth, and he took my $4 or whatever it cost, pointed upstairs to a room. And the room actually had a, a light bulb hanging from the ceiling. And no lock on the door, so I propped a chair up against the door because I'm 16 and I'm in Wittenberg and I'm in Polak, Jules, and it's storming outside. The next morning I get up and hitchhiked back to Appleton. This continues that wanderlust theme. Uh, in those days you could hitchhike. And uh, then I caught the train because I was determined to go see my buddy. So I took a train ride up to Marinette, uh, Menominee, Twin Cities. Arrived about 11 p.m. that night, and we spent the whole night just driving around the city. He had a driver's license. The next morning, I took the train back. Oh, that's fine. That was my first experience at traveling on my own and wanting to see what's on the other side of the hill or the horizon. And then uh, it continued in college when I disappointed my parents annually by not coming home for spring break, often not at Christmas, not at Thanksgiving. I would simply head out to the mountains from New Ulm, Minnesota. You go west and you hit mountains eventually. One of you take over for yeah. a moment. Here. No, I think that's a great story, and I think Wade and I have stories, although mine's better, I'm sure, of uh, travel faux pas. Uh, I have one of Wittenberg that we went uh, with a bunch of people. We, you know there's two Wittenbergs? Which Wittenberg? I do know which time we, we went to one, and we went to the wrong one, and then ended up getting to uh, Leipzig, and uh, too late to find uh, lodging, and... Uh, uh, so we stayed in the, we just kind of bounced around lights but all, all night until we finally made it to the correct Wittenberg. But uh, I've lost my passport in, in, um, really? in Europe. Yeah. That's like so, the one thing yeah. you don't do. <laughs> so um, um, so that, that's a whole other story. But that's part of the adventure a little bit. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the story you're telling, there's a little bit of an innocence there where the 16-year-old can go ahead and do that. And uh, at that time, and still, I think today, still, especially if you go to Europe, and certainly when uh, I first started traveling to to Europe, it was it's really safer. It's really safe, and and maybe even more safe than 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 America. And so you could take those those chances, and uh, you could you could wander, and you knew you were going to make it back somehow, some way. And it was part, it's part of the charm and, and part of a certain, uh, certainly a learning experience, too, where you have to be pushed into a place where, all right, I got to figure it out on my own here. I have to be a big boy and ask questions. I have to admit my mistake. I got I to get off the train and go the other way. I've done that plenty of times, too. Uh, it, it really is, uh, it's more than just going to see the culture. You do kind of... Uh, learn about yourself and, and grow quite a bit. And I think of, um, you know, places like uh, Canada and Australia, where it's just kind of almost understood that uh, you go travel, you take a you take a year off and you go travel. I know that a lot of uh, educators in Canada just kind of understood that there would be a year that you would take off and, and go and, and go and go travel and and it really is a learning experience so yeah go go ahead marty okay i've recovered my my throat and my voice here oh, excellent <laughs> yeah and it tra i agree with you mike on on the travel learning about yourself as i grew older and of course continued to travel i have a motorcycle too that's part of my past and present and i like to hop on the bike without a destination just just travel for a while until I decide to stop and then talk to the locals. I have a few mottos when I take students abroad too and one is ask a local. 
even if it's a different language. When we're in Italy, they're speaking Italian, but still ask a local and you'll learn something. <clears throat> you'll learn something about where you are and what they're like. Uh, another part of my, my travel uh, reflects my love of American literature and, and also British literature because those, those writers, Henry James and Mark Twain and Nathaniel Hawthorne and moving into the 20th century, Hemingway and Steinbeck and Faulkner, they all traveled. They began their careers by living in Paris. They were even called the expatriates, and, and uh, that benefited them. And for the audience who's listening, just because you live in Waterloo or Fort Atkinson or, or uh, Rhineland or Wisconsin or maybe some other state, uh, doesn't mean that you're being denigrated by this conversation. You can read and you can view YouTube things and, and watch television shows, but the point is to broaden your horizon, to, to expand your mind. Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, was a great philosopher in the 1800s, essayist, former pastor. He resigned his parish at 32 years of age after his wife died. But he said travel is fool's paradise. Even though he said that, he traveled to England seven times met Thomas Carlyle and Goethe. So uh, he, and he traveled to Wisconsin a number of times to give, this is before trains, he did it by horse huh. and buggy and spoke in Oshkosh and Ripon and Beloit. Uh, take it away again, guys. Yeah, no, I, that's 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 good lesson to learn too that, you know, there are people who come to visit Wisconsin and think Wisconsin is, uh, you know, uh, diverse and weird and different and, and there there's, you just... So it, you get used to your own thing and you think that's normal. And again, like you said, it's not a cut on your culture. In fact, your culture is beautiful and wonderful. It's just that you're used to it. And when people come to see your culture, they're like, that's, I learned something new. I learned something different. I, I, I heard different terms. I mean, the, not just the dialects, but the different words we say and use in uh, the upper Midwest compared to other parts of of, of the United States say something about us. I mean, even just the difference between Minnesota and Michigan or Minnesota and Wisconsin says something, says something about the culture and about, uh, about the people. And maybe just one last thought, and then I'll maybe give it to, to Wade, and then you can take the conversation. It's, it's not just even talking to people. It's, I found fascinating, uh, um, eavesdropping on conversations as well. Um, and this is more apt in, in places like in the British Isles where there's where you can first blend in so you don't automatically look like a foreigner, but obviously the, the, um, the language is the same. And I can remember two old guys in, uh, I think it was in Edinburgh, sitting in this, <clears throat> sitting at, at a, uh, it was like kind of town square by a fountain. And I was sitting next to them, it was kind of crowded, and they were talking about the news in the U.S. And everybody in the world knows the U- uh, the United States news. We don't know anything that's going on in France, but they know what's going on here. I know uh, which what's going is, on in France. Well, riots. The riots. Um, <clears throat> that's a lesson to us, right? That they they are aware of what's going on in United States politics, but we're not quite aware of what, and that's that's to our shame. But anyway, just their take on America uh, was kind of interesting, and I think they were talking about gun violence, and they just said it's just it's just a violent culture over there. It's just a violent culture over there, and and right or wrong, they were make this was I got a window into what that specific group thought about me and in an unfiltered way. And uh, sometimes you could blow it off, but other times you go, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. I happened to travel during the Bush Gore um, election and the aftermath of that. And it was just so interesting. Everybody, when they found out that you were American, wanted to tell you about their opinion of the American situation. And it was so interesting to see what sides people were on. Just about every white European was for Gore, and the first reason they gave was the death penalty. And yet every Muslim that we met was pro-Bush. And often they would give the... Um, the reason that uh, Lieberman was Jewish and then that was a problem for them. And, and then to look back, you know, just three, four years later and the, the war in Iraq, it was, it's just, it's just a different, it, it's just a fascinating um, study in not just politics, but, but human thought. Well, and I think just mentioning the political side too, I mean, one of the more interesting things to be able to listen in on people talking about too is 
we talk about um, under the Obama years and, and uh, Clinton and the kind of the doctrine of intervention that took place in Syria and some other places. It's really interesting to listen to Europeans talk about that um, because in many ways we made decisions over there that have greatly impacted Europe um, and the people in those places, right? And so you can have, and especially if you've talked to people from those places who are in Europe, some really interesting uh, perspectives that you otherwise haven't got. Uh, We sometimes can be very removed from the impact that our decisions as a country can have elsewhere. And uh, part of that is because I think, as you mentioned, Mike, how we consume news and what we choose to consume, uh, it can sometimes be eye-opening to get, well, this is why they're frustrated with us about something. And I would just say to go back to what Marty said, and uh, the Emerson, I didn't know Emerson was a pastor either, so that was really interesting to find out. I do think when we talk about fool's travel, there is something to the wisdom of when you travel to not only go where travelers go. And, and that's something that um, I think our student groups that go and travel, this is a great thing because it gets to connect with their education. But if you're ever traveling on your own, I think there there is a great value sometimes to going you know, with a loved one or with friends and just traveling and, and kind of getting off the beaten path. Because sometimes you are getting kind of like the Epcot Center tour of an area. If you're only hitting the spots that are there to cater to foreign travelers, um, and you can find basically everything you want of American life in those spots. And though I, so I think there is a benefit. You mentioned, Marty, even with your tour of Italy, some kind of places that you might stop that wouldn't be your traditional, you know, we're going to wear our yellow tourist cap and go see. Maybe any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, I, I deliberately avoid the tourist places. I can give you a few examples. The Trevi Fountain in Rome is a place the kids always want to go and and throw coins over their shoulders. But pickpockets uh, abound in that particular spot. It's just a fountain that's been glorified by a movie. And I'd much rather show them something authentic like Ostia Antica on the Mediterranean in Tiber uh, Juncture and the ancient city that Paul no doubt walked through (coughs) 2,000 years ago. So... Uh, yes, wait, I agree that to, to say I've been to Paris because I saw the Eiffel Tower and uh, in Rome I, I walked around the Colosseum, that's not what we do. That was kind of how Hitler toured Europe, by the way, right? He went to these big monuments, and I usually encourage people not to do things Hitler's way. I would agree. But, yeah, we focus on enculturation, and that's why we stay in Orvieto in Italy exclusively. We take the train and subway to other cities, but... We stay in this little walled community. It's up on top of an old volcano, and you can only get there through a funiculare, a kind of a cable car that goes up the side of the mountain. And about 4,000 people live in Orvieto, and none of them speak English except for a few shopkeepers. So it's authentic Italian. And getting back to the food, you get the real margarita and fungi uh, pizzas, which are not Pizza Hut or Domino's. And... Uh, I just think that the travel is is the cat's meow for any age, kids, adults. You say you take your children along. Mike, I don't know if you took your children when you lived in Germany or were over there for a while. We didn't. Uh, you know, I, I traveled. In fact, I, I went. I've only been with my wife once. Uh, she's gone independently, and then I went to, to study for a little bit, just very short, not even a uh, just a couple weeks at a time. Um, but I think I told you this, Marty, one time that uh, when each of my children uh, went to the first grade, I bought some stocks first to teach them, you know, how the how, this is this crazy thing called the market <laughs> where grown men gamble and call it uh, call it investing. Um, but also I said, this money is for you to travel someday. And if you don't want to travel, that's fine. But I get the money back. Here's a little seed money or for you, you to go. you could give it to Uncle Wade. Uncle Wade, so he can travel, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but just there's just such an importance to hand that down. And I, I don't think my parents were um, purposeful in this, but, but they certainly made an impact to me when they told me stories. Both of them went, uh, I think, either right after college or during college, a summer trip to, to Europe and, and traveled extensively, and, and they both liked it, and they would tell stories about them. And so I grew up kind of like a kid in Australia. That's what you do. 
you do that. And so I had in my mind, someday I'm going to do this and, and took the, took a year off and did that. And I want to instill that in my, in my children. And it can be anywhere. I'm not telling you have to go to Europe. We've been a little bit Eurocentric here, but that, you know, that's kind of, that's okay. Um, it can be anywhere it's got to be, but it's got to be somewhere where you, you hear a different language and you see a different culture and you have to eat different food. And, and I hope that they, you know, get lost a few times and uh, ha- have that kind of those kinds of experiences that I did. And and even more important today, I mean, you were talking, Marty, about when you were 16. My daughter's almost going to be 16. Maggie's 16 right now already, right? Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine them just getting on a train when you were gone for the weekend? I mean, we ba- barely let them uh, walk down the street without uh, protection. So there, there's uh, something I think, to... Yeah, I, well, you I really do. think I'd you're, be okay you, with yeah, it. You're but okay. Maggie kind of runs free. So. <laughs> um, but I, I'm getting to the point where I, I realize that I have to push my kids out a little bit and for their better betterment. And, um, and if that means them making a few mistakes along the way, you know what? It's a risk I'm, I'm willing to take. Well, and I think it something that comes in a little bit when we've talked about uh, studying history or even studying other theologies, and I think especially also studying language, is that these things reveal to us not necessarily always things that we think wrong or do wrong or go about wrong, but rather that there's other ways people think things and do things and go about things. So if you're studying a foreign language, you're not only learning word-for-word equivalents, but you're learning um, what words they don't have and what words they do have that we don't have and why they felt those words necessary. How they choose to put um, phrases together is the verb the most important thing, is the subject the most important thing, is the most important thing the one that the action is being done to. Um, Do they see more value in thinking of people as a whole or of the individual? what do they see as the ultimate purpose or, or meaning of life? Um, what is the the role of the family? Uh, what should your day look like? These are all things where it's not necessarily that you go and then you realize, hey, how I've done stuff in Detroit or Milwaukee is wrong. It's rather saying, hey, there's some other ways that people have done stuff. And there's some things that you go and you say, you know, I get that. That's not for me. But there's other things that it can be really helpful to step back for. And, and it's as people who work in the humanities, I think we're privileged to kind of have that um, ingrained into us of sometimes it's really helpful to step back and look at something from a different culture or age or um, geography and have your thought rounded out, filled out, expanded um, because of maybe blind spots that, that we have in our own. And I think that's where Um, You know, Marty's Travel is something that we give credit for at the college, Um, and it's not simply because of the academic work, which they're doing academic work attached to it, but that good travel in and of itself is education. But that's only going to happen if you listen to the language. Learn a few words before you go. You don't have to learn the whole language and become fluent, but even learning a bit, of, a little bit. I love getting a little travel book when I'm going to go somewhere new and learning how they say hello, how they say goodbye, how they say little phrases You know about purchasing, transactional things. There's a lot in that. Look up those little words that make up those phrases, and you can really gain a lot from that. I don't know any thoughts you guys have on that, but I know that's, and I mean, part of this with politically, we've, and I remember being in Munich when Bush just got elected. And, you know, depending on where you would go, it would be similar. When we lived in Rotterdam, um, our neighborhood was majority non-Dutch. So it was majority um, Eastern European and Turkish. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting when we would encounter the Dutch, the younger Dutch having five kids, they just couldn't wrap their head around why we would have five kids. And I remember taking um, the boys to get their haircuts once, and then Trisha had the girls, and she was going to come meet us. And so the boys are getting their haircuts, and this nice Dutch woman's being very, you know, talkative and nice. And I mean, talkative for a Dutch woman. And uh, Trisha walked in with the three kids, and she just said, you know there's birth control. <laughs> you know, they couldn't imagine. Now, Dutch grandmas thought it was the best. We had five. You know who thought it was Awesome, we had five kids. The Turkish baker down the street, he, the kids never went away without a bunch of stuff, and they thought it was amazing and awesome that we had a, a, a big family. Um, just the perspectives on that said a lot about where, what people valued, um, where they came from on stuff. And, uh, and so I think there's a, a lot of education in those things. Yeah, just to illustrate your point, Wade, <clears throat> we were, uh, and Mike, you mentioned Edinburgh, 
and we always start in Scotland and then move down into the UK, into England. Uh, we were at a restaurant, it's called Brody's, Deacon Brody's, right on the Royal Mile there, and one of my students ordered some food and couldn't finish it. So she asked the waitress for a doggy bag, <clears throat> and the, the waitress didn't understand at all and, and looked at her with uh, misunderstanding and not knowing, and my student tried to explain. Of course, they're speaking English, but she just didn't understand the concept of something you take away from the meal. And finally, she gave her a sack or something, and my student put the food in. And then here's the lesson. My, my student, as she walked away, was criticizing the waitress, saying they didn't even know what a doggy bag was. And I said, that, that's really not your place to criticize that waitress. You should have recognized that all the people eat their food at the table, and what they don't eat, they leave. No one takes food out from a Scottish restaurant or pub. And, and, and they're criticizing you right now as you're walking away. Like, what, what is that American doing? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just learning the otherliness. And I guess that's the, the bigger umbrella to our topic of travel is to, to learn what others can teach us and to experience things that our comfort level ordinarily doesn't put us in. And to, I think I like to call our travels adventures. We're... Even the air flight for eight hours or ten hours across the ocean is, a, is an adventure. And if you're always seeking solace in, in your comfort level, you're never going to learn. You're just going to – Emerson had a great speech on that to, to the Harvard students who uh, represented his alma mater when he went back and he told them, <coughs> you, you're rote rut dwellers, you, you learn like parrots – Polly want a cracker is what you repeat. And Polly doesn't know she's a bird, and she doesn't know what a cracker is, and she doesn't know that she's hungry. She's just saying, Polly want a cracker, and, and that, that's so meaningless. Yeah, and then, you know, just some tips on travel, too, not that we're experts, but you said learn some of the, learn some of the, the language there. You know, uh, to dress appropriately in certain places, know where you are, that kind of thing. And, and you really can start to undo that kind of uh, ugly American thing that people have. Um, and uh, that, that seems unfair until you've been at a beautiful cathedral and a group from Texas or Brooklyn comes in. And <laughs> then you go, okay, I sort of get what they mean. Uh, just kind of, it, it's not that people mean to be disrespectful, but they come off that way. And so uh, just to kind of be very respectful and humble when you go into a different culture, that's what we want when people come into our culture, um, you know, not just to come in and say, here's what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. Um, um, you cater to me. It's it's off-putting. And so we need to be careful about that. And, and when you do do that, when you do make an effort, even if you fumble your words or whatever, just the generosity. I'm sure, Marty, you have plenty of stories of the generosity that those people will show you with their time um, and uh, with their personalities willing to open up to you. And that, that's one of the great things uh, about travel, too, is, is to uh, just to see an individual person, um, how they think and how they interact with you. Uh, regardless of political opinion, if they if you get into that or not, regardless of what they think about this food or that food or what's going on, just how they interact with somebody. And you, you can't get that um, at the Eiffel Tower or um, Big Ben or anything like that. Because those are crawling with Americans. Uh, that's something we really strive to accomplish as we travel. And in just four weeks, I'll be in Italy with 13 of our students, we're going to stay in a hotel called Hotel Virgilio, named for Virgil. It's actually the dormitory for the workers who built the Duomo in Orvieto. A Duomo is a large cathedral, and it stems back to 1300. So we'll be staying in rooms that are older than anything in America from 1300. They're remodeled and, of course, updated. but. The proprietors there have kept us for seven years going, and uh, Paula and Alessandro and Ilaria and Mattia and Davide uh, like us, and they have not raised the prices for my Wisconsin Lutheran College group 
in seven years. They continue to charge us the same thing in spite of what uh, has happened to economics in that time. The same thing happens when we go to England. The proprietors of a hostel that we stay at annually, David and Sherry Robbins, uh, have actually lowered their price per night per student because our group is so uh, honest and genuine and careful and polite. We're, we're not perfect, but we really strive to make a good American impression. And Mike, you're right; the people appreciate it. Yeah, I, it, it's such a such, such a you know people say okay that the French are um, you know. Uh, angry or rude or however you want to say it and did you know they're you know rioting what? right now Mike? yeah you know what they are um but and you I, know i'm going to be in paris in four <laughs> weeks I, so. I had a great line from one of our professors he said uh yeah the parisians are kind of rude but don't take it don't take offense they're rude to each other but once you get to know them and break down those barriers they're as generous and as beautiful as any other and any other group i wanted to maybe point out the or piggyback on what you said about history is we just do not have a concept of history in America where our oldest thing is, you know, 300, 350 years old. And we look at the rest of the world and we can't, can't understand, why are they fighting in Bosnia again? Well, for one, these are battles that have gone on for like five, six, seven, eight hundred years. Not only that, but we have this kind of separation between the secular and the spiritual a little bit. And, and a lot of these things are tied in not just with culture and politics but also religion it's all intermingled there and it's good for us to sit down in a place that was built um, well before um, people in Europe even knew there was an America and and to take that all in and and just be a little bit humbled by that once in a while I think it helps helps our view then of the rest of the world well and I think Something that's helpful, no matter where you're traveling in the world, and something that I, f I, I like to, you know, when I'm getting ready to go to bed, I'll end up going online and try to look up something to kind of read a little bit before going to bed. So <clears throat> a lot of times I'll look at New York Times or something, and then it mentions a place, and I'll be like, okay, so last night I was looking up Estonia. Um, but uh, look at a region and look for a map that says what the languages are in that region. Look for a map that says what the religions are in that region. And you can really get a sense for whether it be Europe, Asia, um, you know, wherever in the world you might travel, America is somewhat unique that you can think how far you can go in this country and get by with English and with, in some sense, at least in our past, a general American Protestant worldview <clears throat> um, that kind of crosses barriers, whether that's the main worldview that's rejected now, it still has a place then, or a worldview that is um, still predominant in some places. And when you travel, you realize, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to Italy or whatever country, and Italian, right? Well, over that mountain, there's still people that have this dialect that you can barely tell the difference between the two, or an entirely different language, um, and maybe a very different religious past, even within the same religion. And so I think we sometimes miss too. We can get rivalries like high school football. You know, I in my previous parish, high school football was huge. And it wasn't because we were extremely small towns, but the towns were the size of which most of the town could go to the game. And, right, there's an identity in that. Well, amplify that by centuries. I, the, the other thing with travel, too, I'll just throw out and then... Um, Let me interrupt you for one thing. Mike that, even put up his finger that, just so listeners know. The counterbalance between that that huge weight of history in a place like, you know, Rome compared to, let's say, Milwaukee. At the same time, the flip side is, and to your point, Wade, we've had one constitution. We've had the United States of America since 1776. That's longer than Italy and Germany. That's, you know, I mean, so they have fresh battles, but they're deep-seated. So history and the contemporary come together where we're like, oh, yeah, we had that battle. Now everything's settled. And so we don't have the freshness of battles nor the depth of history, and they have both. Go well, ahead. And I think remembering with that, too, is we might – so let's say you're thinking of Europe and you think of Germany and you go, man, Germany is so much older than the United States. No. Germany's younger than the United States. We're talking Bismarck for Germany becoming a thing. Before that, it's a collection of states, and France had a very vested interest in keeping it that way. Um, you were a Prussian or a Bavarian or, or, or whatever the case may be. Um, but maybe just 
one last point I have, and then, um, you know, we can see where, where you guys want to go with stuff. <clears throat> but uh, I, I would say another benefit with travel is uh, the sense of time you get while you travel. We, um, every culture values time differently, and it gives different things it, its time. Um, there's things you linger for and things you don't linger for. And I think in America, we're particularly bad at not lingering for much, right? We don't even speak of lingering. We talk about wasting time. Uh, we, we see time in a very, America is very much born of the Industrial Revolution. This is one of the most formative ages in our past. We run on clocks. Uh, we're on the go. So even if uh, we might end up in a rabbit hole on YouTube when, instead of grading, I'll just speak for myself, but right, we, oh, I wasted time. Uh, Marty talks about that meal. Well, part of the reason, right, you probably sit at the table to finish the meal is you're there with people you care about and you're enjoying a meal and you're talking. And I think one of the things that can be valuable about travel then too is to kind of step out of your sense of time. And uh, I, I find this for myself vocationally that, you know, I treasure my family. I treasure a lot of the things in my life. But then I look at, well, do I linger with them or do what time do I find for them in these ways? And I think there's something to travel when you go elsewhere. And I think this is true beyond Europe as well, obviously. I mean, I know people who've traveled in the Middle East and this is very true. Uh, is there's this certain thing sometimes time stops for. Um, and there's a value in that. And I think I often find myself when I have traveled coming back and going, what should I linger for? What what should I stop for? And I, I think that can be uh, very helpful. And part of it is, I think, we in America, right, we have a past. And there's big cities where you walk by history, right? You, but, but it's not the same way where that dots our landscape. The closest thing would maybe be the small town with the church cemetery right in the middle. And you walk through and you're remind, remember, reminded of generations. But being in the midst of history does remind you um, you have time. We always think time is running out. I have this many years of life, maybe. You know, this is my life expectancy. Um, but not everywhere is it a commodity. And and you kind of realize, okay, I'm a part of time. Look at, you know, you look you go to Cologne. I used that before. And you look at the cathedral. Right? That wasn't, that wasn't built, like, in six months, like we expect our buildings to be built. Um, it, uh, I think there is a, a benefit in that. I don't know any thoughts you guys have with that. Well, I, I like it. I like the lingering part. And <clears throat> again, just relishing our experiences to go to Scotland or England or uh, I've traveled in Germany and Austria and Switzerland and uh, Italy is is to make the students stop, put their cell phones away, and just look and listen. Just stop wherever we are. It, it may be a panoramic sunset. It may be the middle of a town square, but just insist, or, or in a museum, their tendency is to run through one door after the other and see, yeah. uh, in England, you guys know London has the British uh, Gallery of Art that's perhaps second to the Louvre in, in the world, and we go in there, but but they can't see it all in two hours, so we usually try to tell them just focus on a room, go to a, an artist, go to a particular part and, and linger. I like the word and and reflect. And I wish someone would have told me that when I was younger at museums because that's something I look back on now and I I tried to, so many places to see everything at once that now I remember nothing at all. What a, what a mistake to to just hustle from one time limit and deadline to the next and that's probably true of college students today in the very college campus we're sitting at right now. Uh, to, to reflect on what's valuable and and think about it, and and pause, and and uh, ruminate. It, it's all good stuff. Uh, so maybe just we got a couple minutes left. Um, maybe uh, give you a, a last question here, or maybe a couple last questions. Uh, you, you talked about uh, uh, wunderlust and uh, this 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 desire to travel that maybe you couldn't even control, and and you you still have it, even though oh, yeah. you're not 16 anymore. So, say t tell me this. Um, what is it, and how has it changed you? And has have has your view of this desire to see and go and travel? How has it first changed you? But how have you 
how has that changed for you? Like, um, do you still have that desire, or what? What? What advice would you? What? What? What advice would you give to the sixteen-year-old Marty kind mm-hmm. of thing as he's looking into his future? Well, I've been pretty blessed with my with my fifty years of time since then, and and I've seen forty-eight states and thirteen countries, and continue to quest to do that, Mike. And I'm trying to imbue my children with that same philosophy. We're taking our our son and daughter-in-law to England and Scotland this coming summer. Uh, he's going to be 40 on Christmas Day, and and this is just kind of a present for them. But it'll be fun to travel and view things through their eyes. I think what what I like to do, and of course I hate to say I've been there, done that. I, I hate that expression because it presumes the other person is ignorant. But what I like to do is see the view of things as others see it uh, through their eyes. And that can be my 20-year-old students or my 40-year-old son or my... I think that's a great point. My wife and and how they react to what they see. Not so much that I'm trying to tell them this is what I see and what I think, but what do they perceive? So that's helpful. And... uh, I think the Lord intends us to be questing. It's, uh, you know, personified in Faustus. Of course, ceaseless action makes the man and continue to to journey and don't don't be stopped or sated by Mephistopheles' temptations or anybody else. But But really, it's travel is fatal to prejudice, and if you want to kill prejudice about others, travel among them. Yeah. It's it's easy to throw bombs. Well, um, and, you, and you think yeah. of how often in America we have someone who's in America from somewhere else, and you think, man, they can't even speak English, or why don't they know how to do this basic thing that we know how to do? Uh, you know, talk about killing prejudice. You travel abroad, and you realize there's a ton, a ton of things that we take for granted, like, I'm going to go to the store and do this, and I know how to go to the store, and then you realize... Uh, Maybe I no, don't, don't know entirely to go to the store how I used to. Yeah, that's so. such a huge deal, and I try to make that point in, in my parish for for sure, and then now as a as a teacher, that when you hear somebody speak English as their second language, it sounds simplistic, and your your immediate response is incorrect that they're not that bright. When you go, hold on. They're speaking a second language. How many languages do I know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, just and and then to be forced into a place where you are the other, where you are different, is I, I think Twain, of course, had it right that it, it kills prejudice and you and you you kind of shrink a little bit. And it's a good experience to go. Oh, you walk out of that shop having put your foot in your mouth in a different language or a different culture, and you feel about this small. That's a good experience yeah. for you, and um, it's it's humbling, and yet. Nothing bad happened. You keep keep going in your life, and it's going to be all right. And uh, you you appreciate other people. Um, you lose your xenophobia, that's for sure. And I think uh, along those lines, too, I think particularly for people who are Christians, and maybe this is just as someone in a theology department saying this, but I think travel is particularly helpful for people who are Christians. And I don't mean like that by that simply travel to the Holy Land, because I'll be quite honest, I've never made that a priority for myself. Um, I, that's not speaking against that. Maybe that's something I will do someday when there's peace in the Middle East. Um, I feel comfortable <laughs> with it. But uh, but what, what travel does, I think, prepares you for reading a text in a very helpful way. When we're reading the Gospels, Lord knows when we're reading the Old Testament, um, but I would say especially the Gospels and the parables and Jesus' interactions with people, um, it's very easy for us to read those through the lens of how we operate. Oh, well, this thing is important to us, so that must have been important to them. And then we really change the meaning of a parable or an account because, um, you know, we well, uh, think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, Sodom and Gomorrah, we have a name for a sin called sodomy. There's sodomy laws in America. We look at that account and we go, sexual immorality was the sin. But there's other cultures that read that, and they would and and they would probably say, "Yep, that's one of the sins." But inhospitality was a big sin in that account, um, where we can sometimes miss out on something because of we're not equipped to step out of ourselves and ask, "What was? Why was what Jesus saying relatable to the people then? 
why were they offended by this or why did they gravitate towards that? And I think travel can be a good first step towards doing that because when you step into the text, then you have to ask yourself, um, what am I bringing into it? And and I think that this is something we would do with lit in general. And I'm sure, Marty, you spent a lot of time in class with this with students of, you know, when we're going to read an American author, what part of America was he from? What time is he writing in? What was going on in his life? Um, when you understand those things, you can really open up and appreciate a text a whole lot more. So I think I think travel has value in that uh, also. Well, I think we've we've covered about. We could probably talk another hour, but we we need to stop here. So we'll just end it with this. Um, this is a world that's been given back to us. That's our. Uh, our tagline for our podcast, this is a world for us to go explore and to learn and to appreciate and to uh, have a community of, of people um, and, and see the different cultures and appreciate all the different people and, uh, and to hopefully uh, combat our own prejudices uh, along the way. And so there's nothing uh, better than for us to say when we were talking about travel to go out and let the bird fly.